You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. So it turns out that this Bible I preach from, it's been falling apart. It's been falling apart, um, and I really like this Bible. It is my favorite Bible, and I got it as a going-away gift from the church in Wichita I came from, and I've been using it. I think almost every sermon I've preached, this sucker has been with me, and it's just wearing out. And so I thought, man, I don't want to trade it out. This is, this is the good one. It, you can just kind of tell which books we've preached through because the pages are a little bit worn. And uh, man, God willing, I keep this through the end. And my, my aim is to finish as a preacher and have preached it all. So I want them all to be worn out, so I'm not interested in trading uh, this far in. Uh, but I looked up what it takes to fix a Bible at a binding company, and turns out I'm also cheap. And so I was like, man, I can't be paying that kind of dough to fix this Bible. And uh, so I did uh, what lots of us do when we're not quite sure how do I go about this. And I got on Amazon and I looked up book binding glue bookbinding glue. And um, Amazon, as normal, has 57,000 kinds of bookbinding glue. So I thought, oh dear, how in the world am I going to pick which bookbinding glue to get? And some of you are sitting there right now going, I know exactly the bookbinding glue you need to get, and the pH level is, I hope you got the right one, Pastor. I wish I would have known you had that skill set because I didn't. Um, and I began to nerd out on bookbinding glue when I thought, who gives a rip about bookbinding glue? I just want something that works and is going to fix. So which product do I get? Well, some of you know, if everything's kind of priced the same, there is a way to make a decision, on Amazon at least, also on eBay, what product should you get? If they're all about the same price, you look at the, you look at those reviews, baby. And this one had like 12 and then this one over here had 3,000 positive reviews. If 3,000 people went to the trouble of, buy, of buying the glue, evaluating the glue, logging back in to tell the world how wonderful that glue is, I think I'm going to be okay with that glue. By the way, it did work very nicely. <laughs> this has been bound, and so far it's holding up. See, the gift of those online reviews is it gives confidence to a hesitant buyer. Here's what you need. It gives confidence to hesitant buyers when you look at those reviews. And it's got me wondering, I wonder if we should crowdsource churches like that. What would it be if we started crowdsourcing ratings for pastors? So that if you are a hesitant buyer, you would have some confidence only 12 people like the guy at Mill Creek, <laughs> but 3,000 people love the person over here. Should we think about a new app? Should Amazon decide or eBay begin to crowdsource how good a preacher is? Well, no, I don't really think this is a very good idea because as it turns out, God actually wants his people to know what a good pastor is. See, I know I was thinking there with bookbinding glue, like, I don't care about this, and I'm not even interested to figure it out. And I realize there may be some of you who are thinking to yourself, you mean God actually wants me to know what a good preacher or pastor is 
frankly, I'd rather look up bookbinding glue details than have to listen to that sermon. <laughs> but if that's you this morning, because this is where we're going in the text, what is a good pastor to be like in character and competency? If that's you this morning and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this is, sounds about as exciting as pH level of bookbinding glue, here's what I'd say to you. Is your soul not... Isn't your soul so important that it would be worth knowing who you're going to allow to shepherd you? Isn't your soul, which is going to live forever, friends, ought you not nerd out even just for one Sunday sermon to know a little bit about the kind of pastor you ought to follow? See, if you're like some of the guys I know, you have spent perhaps more time on what kind of TV you should buy than the kind of pastor you should follow. And if you've got some time to figure out what kind of TV to get, fellas, you could take a few moments to figure out what kind of pastor you ought to follow. This morning then, what God's Word's going to do is walk us through who a good pastor is, what a good pastor does. And if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, would you please open to 1 Timothy 4. Every week, you're a part of the church. We are wanting you to see for yourself that I didn't show up one morning on Monday and go, you know what this church needs is me to teach them about what a good pastor is. Because some of you may be thinking, maybe you're visiting us and you're going, what sort of egotistical maniac is this guy who's going to give us a sermon on what a good pastor is? The kind of pastor I am, the kind of elders that lead this church, we're taking what God's word says and we're trying to give it to you straight. With that, then, we continue this sermon series on God's blueprint for church by considering who a good pastor is and what a good pastor does. So we're going to begin with who a good pastor is. Verse 6, we'll answer this first question, then we'll get to Paul's second. But look with me there at verse 6 and 7, and we find then, if you're taking notes, that the first quality for a good pastor is they're gospel anchored. I'd love for you to write that down. Strong pastors are gospel anchored. Paul there in verse 6 saying, look, Timothy, if you're explaining to the church the things I've trained you in, especially in this letter, why you then, Timothy, will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Would you say good servant? One, two, three. Good servant. I'm taking that title, good servant, and that's where I'm coming up with strong pastors. I'm using that synonymously. Because we want our churches to have good servants. We want strong pastors. And Paul wants to be sure that Timothy realizes good servants are trained in the words of faith. They're trained in good doctrine. They're not sidetracked, look at verse 7, by irreverent, silly myths. Instead, they're trained in godliness. Not silly myths, godliness. Now, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself with this godliness thing, but I think it's so important that you know, when Paul writes godliness in 1 Timothy, he does not mean goodliness. That's a weird word, but I'll have you say it on the count of three if you don't mind. Goodliness, uh, one, two, three, goodliness. When Paul says godliness, he doesn't mean goodliness, and I'm saying that to you because when I read and studied this book, this letter, which we've been doing for months, it was a long time before I realized, oh, when he says godliness, he's not meaning obedience. When Paul says godliness here, he's not meaning faithfulness like other writers in the scriptures do. When he says godliness here, he's not talking behaviorism. 
Instead, if you were here last week, you remember that the mystery of godliness, just scan up the 316, right? Look at 316. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then look at that little poem that comes after, those six phrases. And what we, what we learned last week is those six phrases have nothing to do with our obedience. Do, do, do you remember that little poem? He was manifested in the flesh. Turns out he's not talking about Jeremy Carl's. <laughs> He was vindicated by the Spirit, not you. Seen by, who are they talking about? Talking about Jesus. The mystery of godliness is that there was a faithful and obedient one who came and lived perfectly righteous. He accomplished all that he had to do, and his name is Jesus. So when he's talking about being godly, he's not saying you have to be perfectly faithful and obedient. In this context, he's saying you've got to recall what the main message of God's word is, which is Jesus was godly. Strong pastors are gospel anchored. They understand words of faith. They understand good doctrine. They understand what true godliness is according to Paul. 1 Corinthians 15.3, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says, I delivered to you what is of first importance. Would you say first importance? First importance. What is of first importance? Christ died for our sins. Somebody helped me realize that that is the essence of the gospel. And in, in, in my time as a youth pastor, now my time as a preaching pastor, those five words, that is the heart of our faith. You gotta know those five words. If, if you're evaluating whether you're gonna become a member of our church or not, I hope you will become a member of our church. One of the things we do is we interview you and we say, in 60 seconds or less, would you tell us the gospel? Pastors or elders will ask you that question. And you can just say with a twinkle in your eye, I don't need 60 seconds, bro. Christ died for my sins. (laughs) There's more to the gospel than that, but there is not less. Paul wants Timothy to get it. You need to get the gospel. Strong pastors get the gospel Second, strong pastors are committed to godliness. Look back at verse 8. Notice Paul's argument that bodily training is of some value, which means playing pickup basketball is of some value. So long as you don't hurt your meniscus and need surgery all the time. Going for a jog is of some value. Strong pastors should have some value of bodily training. Okay, fine, even CrossFit. That's of some value. (laughs) But training in godliness, it is double valuable. Because according to Paul, training in godliness pays off right now and it pays off in eternity. Which I guess means all that pickup basketball and paying off in eternity because I was kind of feeling like I could take Jesus if he's like four foot 11, you know, Israelite, doesn't know how to hoop. I was hoping I could beat him in a one-on-one game, but no, it turns out I don't know if we're, I'm actually going to be able to bodily train in heaven with the same stuff we have here. But godliness has value today and eternally. Paul then, not dismissing Timothy's gym membership. Hey, Timothy, it's fine. You want to pump a little iron or whatever, but what's more important is training in godliness. Church, did you know that if you were going to evaluate what a good pastor is, did you know that one of the ways to evaluate whether a pastor or an elder, which in the Bible, those are the same, 
We use the word pastor here, we mean paid elder, and then we say elder when we're talking about a volunteer. But in the Bible, pastor elder is the same thing. And what Paul's doing is saying, here's how you evaluate pastors and elders. That what Paul's saying is, if you're going to evaluate a pastor, the kind that trains in godliness is what you're looking for. In fact, pastors ought to be just as diligent and dedicated to their godliness as an elite athlete is to their athletic training. I'm sad to say, culturally, there seems to be a stereotype that pastors' elders are sort of lazy. And, and wouldn't it be wonderful if a generation from now, if some elite athlete was working out really diligently, Steph Curry, notorious for his NBA workouts, wouldn't it be great if somebody said, man, you're working out almost as hard as a pastor trains in godliness. That's the picture that we see here from Paul. Strong pastors are gospel anchor. They train in godliness. Third, on who a good pastor is, strong pastors are hopeful. Strong pastors are hopeful. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now that might be a little bit confusing the way it gets translated because it sounds like Paul's suggesting universalism. That's that theological concept that it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to go to heaven. And, and some read that and they go, well, does, does that mean everybody's automatically saved just because? I found one commentator named Stott, uh, John Stott, for those of you who know him. I found his summary helpful as he explained that the word there, especially, uh, according to scholars, should rather be translated to be precise or should be translated in other words. In this case, Paul is not saying that God saves believers more than he saves others. He is simply modifying his general statement that God is the savior of all men by adding the limitation that you cannot be saved unless you believe. Uh, what I'm wanting you to get is that if, if Stott is right, and I think he is, verse 10 would read something like this. Our hope is set on God who is the savior of all people or to be more precise, the savior of those who believe. Here then we realize Paul is not promoting universalism, that God saves everyone. Instead, he's actually saying the opposite. Paul's actually saying that salvation is available to anyone, but Jesus is the only one who can save. For believers, Christ is our only hope. With that clarification, then look back at the beginning of verse 10 because do you see how Paul's emphasizing the blood, sweat, and tears that Timothy is to give? We toil and strive. And the reason he works so hard is because Timothy and Paul and all who follow in their footsteps are actually to believe and they have hope God really saves. You want to get to the heart of who a good pastor is, you pump them full of truth serum, you put them on a polygraph, and when you ask the question, does God save, they say, oh yes, he saves. That's what ought to motivate elders to wake up every morning and do the work of ministry. They're not motivated to make a big name for themselves. They're not motivated for greed. They're not motivated for approval. They're not motivated for a thousand other reasons. The motivation ought to be 
Christ saves sinners. I believe it, and I'm getting up today, and I am working hard, blood, sweat, and tears, because I know he will. You know, some of you here, you, you are here, and if we pumped you full of truth serum and put you on a polygraph, you have not yet believed the gospel. You may be willing to give mental assent that Christ died for sinners. You may be even willing to admit you are a sinner who needs to be saved. But what I'm finding in a lot of my conversations is, it's that lordship piece that's the problem. That Jesus is Lord, which if, if you're going to be a Christian according to the Bible, you've got to grant that he's Savior and Lord. And that lordship piece is all about he's the boss. That, that lordship is all about, I will do whatever you want me to do. That, that lordship stuff is all about writing a blank check and saying, whatever you put in there, yes. And, and if you're here and, 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 and you've not yet submitted to Christ as Lord on the authority of God's word, you are not a Christian. And you will stand before God in judgment. And you are looking down the barrel of his judgment, and it is fierce. And I'm asking you, I'm begging you to bow the knee to him as Savior and Lord, saying, I will do whatever you want me to do. I'm praying that God would save you. And I'm hopeful because I know he will. He does save people. Anybody hear Mr. Fred's baptism testimony at age 65? He's coming to faith? Amen. I just feel like that's something that's worth a little bit of applause, seeing as he was destined for hell and God saved him, and he would do the same for you. If you're here and you have not surrendered to Jesus Christ, he is the Savior of all people. If you're Jewish, he'll save you. If you're a Gentile, he'll save you. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. He's the kind of Savior who saves anyone. Last I checked, that includes you. But why should you believe? Why, pastor, I'm here, I'm listening. Why should I believe? Because as Paul clarified, there really is a truth. And there are some really silly myths out there. And when you face judgment someday, I don't want you to be realizing for the first time that your soul is eternal. See, there are silly, irreverent myths that are in our world right now. Some are genuinely trying to convince you that you are going to die and you will cease to exist and there's nothing else. And I want you to know that's a lie. That is a silly, irreverent myth in your heart of hearts. I, I bet the person who wrote that article or I bet that person making the argument in their heart of hearts, I think they actually know they were created for eternity. You have an eternal soul, and you will answer before God for what your decisions that you make here on earth. But if you would surrender to Jesus Christ, that would echo into eternity by having life with Christ. So I'm telling you, I've got hope that Christ has saved you, and I took all of this time because I don't want you walking out of here thinking, man, I wish I would know how to become a Christian. I wish somebody would help me out. You bow the knee to him. You trust him as Savior and Lord. And if you're here and you've been going through the motions, 
especially some of you guys, it gets me hot under the collar. Wake up. Eternity is on the line here. Your soul matters. Christians, if you're here, do you recognize how crucial hope is in a strong pastor? I like Moo's quote here. Pastoral labor is not a leisure activity or hobby. Sloth or indifference to the task would suck the credibility out of all that Paul is commanding Timothy to teach and do. Amen, church. Strong pastors ought not be lazy. Understand Paul's answer to this first question. Who is a good pastor? One who is gospel anchored, committed to godliness, and hopeful. But maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, gee whiz, I'm glad you're so excited about this sermon, Pastor, and I'm really glad that you nerd out on this. Sounds about as exciting as bookbinding glue to me, but I'm glad you're real excited. What does it have to do with to meet with me? Well, here's how I think it actually impacts you, Christian. Many of you that are here, we love that you're here. Members of Mill Creek that are here, we love that you're here, and I hope you're here for a long time, but chances are someday you will be looking for a new church. And if you're looking for a new church, one of the grids that we're getting in this section is how to evaluate good pastors. So if you've got bad pastors, you don't want to be at that church. You want to have a good pastor. Now, understand, I'm hoping to be a preacher here for a long time, and I'm hoping you'll stay here too. But whether it's because you drive too far and you realize that you're driving 30 minutes or more away to come to our church, and when you invite a neighbor, they go, I ain't driving 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. And you realize, man, I may need to relocate my church to somewhere close to where I live. Or maybe you get a new job and that forces you to move away from Mill Creek. Or maybe some of you young people, you're going you're gonna to decide to get a job in a new city or you want to go to university in a different place. Many of us here are not going to be here for the rest of your life. For those of you who are, I'd be honored to do your funeral or you can do my funeral. But for lots of people, that's not going to be the case. Not to mention the saddest of all reasons people leave a church is because they've lost trust in the leadership and they feel like, I can't trust you anymore. And then you have to leave because it's spoiled. But if you're looking for a new church, this is a grid through which to evaluate pastor elders. Or if you're here and you're a guest and you're sort of trying to decide, is this the kind of church I want to be a part of? Well, the timing is impeccable because God in his sovereignty is showing you here is what you ought to be looking for in pastor elders. So lock this in, because if Amazon or eBay try to do some crowdsourcing thing, I can't imagine they get it right. Know what a good pastor is. That's the first application. Know it. Know it. Talk to one of the members, if you're considering this church, and ask them, is this descriptive of the pastor elders here? And I hope they would confidently say yes. Even if there's times we make programming decisions and that hurts you, or we just don't know all the impact, or even though pastor elders don't do as good of a job of communicating with you as we mean to, like every church I've ever been a part of has done an awful job of communicating. I don't know why in God's sovereignty he like takes the gifts of communication and he like prevents pastor elders from having them when it comes to getting you the info you need. Like, man, if you would just take five more minutes a week and work on not just the sermon, but just like stuff we need to know, that'd be very helpful. Oh, okay. <laughs> 
I forgot about that. I promise we don't have a staff meeting and say, what are the things we're not going to tell the church so they can say, man, why don't you guys communicate with me better? Promise. Know what a good pastor is. Second application, follow pastors who demonstrate these qualities. Follow pastors who demonstrate these qualities. If you're here and you're convinced, yeah, I think Mill Creek pastor elders are like this, then one of the best gifts you could give us is to follow our leadership and how we preach the word. Respond to it. See, let me, let me bring you into a little secret. Many pastor elders, we question whether or not the work we're doing matters. Not all the time, not usually Sunday morning during worship service, but after one of those hard conversations that goes really bad and we didn't want it to go bad. Or when you're looking at the face of a blank piece of paper and thinking, man, i got to create a teaching off of this text and I'm just lost. Or whatever it is, the, the, the cultural Kool-Aid of success for pastors, not, not, not what the Bible says, but the cultural Kool-Aid says stuff like this. If, if you're a good pastor elder, then, then your church is always growing and when you preach, there's standing room only, and, and you've got uh, several books that have been published and several in the queue, and you're going to become a plenary speaker of a lot of conferences, and they fly you all over the place so they can hear you be God's gift to dropping all the truth bombs that you had in your book deal. That's what a successful pastor is, at least according to the culture. So it leaves regular preachers like me, regular pastors like our folks going, what's wrong with us? Because uh, we got no books in the queue, or at least I don't have a book in the queue, and I'm not intending to have a book in the queue. And what I'm suggesting then is in the face of what can be discouraging, one of the ways that would be of benefit is if you would, if you would follow pastors or leaders, might I actually broaden this to include the staff as well? It'd be great if you might offer some encouragement. Now, I realize this may seem really goofy because I am a pastor elder and I'm saying encourage me and I just want to go on the record that many of you just this last week did. And so I'm not asking you to write me another note this week because I got last, last week's. It was wonderful. But I'm in the limelight a lot. What I'd encourage you to do is if you've got a pastor elder you know, if, you, if I broaden it to staff, maybe see some of them with these qualities, a kind word to them just goes so far. If they've encouraged you to follow Jesus in some ways, if they've been showing you God's word, what an encouragement to them if you would follow. Final application here, confront pastors if they're falling short. Not that any of the elders at Mill Creek perfectly follow this explanation of character, but we're trying but in the event any of us are consistently swerving into irreverent, silly myths, if any of our pastors are ignoring godliness or actually being lazy, we need to be courageously confronted because all of us sit under God's word. If you're wondering, well, how do I actually do that? Because that sounds hard and scary. It's two or three witnesses, and we'll get to there in 1 Timothy 5.17. So stick with us. There's a way God wants us to be confronted. But that's, we answer to God's word like all of us do. For now, here is the kind of person a pastor should be who pastors must be. But that leads us to our second big question. What must a good pastor do? This is our final point in this sermon. Move with me then. What a good pastor does from verses 11 to 16. Continuing through. In verse 11, what does a good pastor do? Strong pastors teach. 
Paul minces no words with Timothy. Clarity is kindness, and Timothy can know Paul's expectation. Timothy, command and teach the church these things. Timothy, of course, then was to follow Paul and preach what Paul told him to preach. And strong pastors following in the footsteps of Timothy would do the same. More than that, strong pastors must be willing to teach everything God's word says. We are not embarrassed about any of it. And it might be hard, but we are to teach it. Weak pastors don't command and teach Paul. Weak pastors avoid Paul. He's hard. His arguments are dense. His applications are sharp. Hey, you should preach Paul. Weak pastors say, no way, I'm not preaching Paul. Strong pastors teach the word. Second, strong pastors set an example. If you're taking notes, that's number two. The first was teach. Second is they set an example in word, deed, love. Word, deed, love, faith, and obedience. All who watch ought to be being able to follow a pastor elder's examples. In the words of John Stott, the example which Christian leaders set then, whether in their life or their ministry, should be dynamic and progressive. People should be able to observe not only what they are, but what they are becoming. Supplying evidence that they are growing into maturity in Christ. Now, some Christian leaders imagine that they have to appear perfect with no visible flaws or blemishes. But not even Paul himself concluded that he had not arrived. In the same way, we should not give the false impression that we have reached our goal. On the contrary, we are still on the road, still pilgrims. Yes, church, pastors are pilgrims. But on the whole, ought to be offering an example to follow. Third, strong pastors focus on the word. I would like you to look, especially at verse 13 there, as Paul says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. And I want you to see that because every now and then in our cultural moment, people are sort of confused. Why is it that you had Jordan as a Timothy track in here and up here actually reading the Bible? And then why is it that you spend so much of the worship service explaining the Bible? Answer, because the Bible tells us to. (laughs) See, understand culturally the way they did church then. The way they did church then. This is the way everybody did synagogue worship. In synagogue worship, you would read Scripture, okay? And then somebody would get up and they would explain what the Scripture said. That's the way everybody did it. So Jesus, Luke 4, if you remember, his first sermon in the Gospel of Luke, somebody reads the text, it's Isaiah, and then Jesus gets up and he explains the text. That's the model. That's the way it always worked. That's why we do what we do. We expose what the Scripture said. That's where we get that $5 word, expository preaching. Whatever the text says, that's to be what the sermon is. That's why whenever we're trying to preach, whatever the big idea of the God's Word is, we're trying to make the big idea of the sermon. And to the degree we get that right, amen, that's God's Word. Of course, we need to get better at it, but that's the idea. The challenge then is that if you were crowdsourcing a good pastor or a good church, far too many people would think that that sort of an expectation is weird. And I'm sad to say, far too many times, instead of God's word being the map that the sermon follows, God's word becomes a trampoline that a pastor uses to jump into anything he wants to talk about. 
If you're looking for a new church and you notice that the pastor uses the Bible as a trampoline, run. God's word, that's all we've got as pastors. God's word does God's work, and if we're off that thing, good luck. Now look, I've got strong words for pastors who use the Bible as a trampoline, but I've got grace too. It's just because I used to be that guy. I used to be that guy. I'd get up and I'd say some, I'd think to myself, ooh, I know what they need. Oh, I'm going to give them the business this week because I know. And somebody said, well, don't you think like God knows better what they need? I wish I'd heard that early in my ministry. By God's grace, this church is committed to taking what he has said and teaching it. We're trying to focus on the word because that's what a good pastor does. I heard it said like this, just like a waiter, a good waiter takes the master chef's food and then delivers it to the people and does not mess with the food, okay? Okay, if, if you're wanting to be a good waiter or waitress and you decide, Oh, I know what I'll do. I will just take that master chef food and I will improve it for him. Thank you, master chef. It just needs a little paprika, a little salt and pepper. Mm, that's pretty good, yeah. Here you go. You're going to get fired. And a preacher is like a good waiter. We are to take what God has written and we are to deliver it to the people and not mess with it. That's what a good pastor does. Strong pastor does that. Next, last sub-point here. Strong pastors improve. Strong pastors, they get better. Look in the text. Paul finishes his argument by highlighting that practice is necessary. Verse 15. You've got to practice. You've got to evaluate. You need to get better. Great encouragement to preachers like me. The expectation is not Perfection. You don't become a pastor because you've arrived. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. Amen? Pastors must be ever mindful of the spiritual gifts they've been given and practice to make progress by carefully evaluating themselves, verse 16. Persevering in their pastoral ministry. Which, verse 16, if a pastor is faithful, ensures their salvation and yours too. Do you see that in the text? Persist in this, for you will save both yourself and your hearers. I want this for us, Mill Creek. I want the thousand years from now to be there. And I want you to be there. And one of the guardrails is strong pastors, they improve. Here then is Paul's summary, leading us to application again. If strong pastors teach, if they set an example, if they focus on the word and improve, what is the application? It's identical to what before. You need to know the competencies of a good pastor. You need to know, based on God's word, this is the kind of pastor elders we are to know. See, too often we've got the wrong criteria when we're trying to evaluate whether we want to go to a church. Do I like the music? Are the seats soft? Is the coffee very good? That coffee's awful. Why would they brew Folgers? We don't brew Folgers, thanks. We'd like to have good coffee. We're trying to keep you coffee snobs. But most important, you need to be evaluating what kind of pastor elders we have here. Not do we have the right age or do we have kids like you have kids or we, we walk, talk, and dress like you. 
It's not about personality. And if the pastor elders, allow me to include staff and other leaders, are following this rubric, then follow. Be the kind of members who follow. Follow our example by staying accountable. Follow our example by focusing on the word. Follow our example by being the kind of people who say, you need to preach what it says. Follow the example by being the kind of person who does not check your brain at the door and go, man, I guess if Pastor Jeremy says it, it's got to be true. No. Be like the Bereans, Acts 17. Look in the word and listen and look and consider. Is what pastor is arguing, is that what the text says? And I haven't arrived. You haven't arrived. But let's try to get better together, huh? Now then, in the event pastors aren't committed to these examples, difficult as it may be, you must confront in love. It's not going to be easy, but I sure hope that if I'm failing, someone will have enough love in their heart to come and tell me, confront me. None of us will ever arrive. Yet if we're not faithful to what it says, we need confronted because all of us sit under God's word. Again, 1 Timothy 5 will give us more in a few weeks. Here then, the picture of a strong past pastor a picture that a crowdsourced company like amazon or ebay it won't provide this is the model but having then walked through the text we've done all the hard work we're trying to expose what this text says at this point we get to this place near the end where we wonder well whoever would do this job i mean once you've read the job description any of you in here who maybe thought, oh, I was wondering if I was called to ministry. We might have just scared you off on this deal because the bar is high, yes? If this is the baseline for pastors seeking to build God's blueprint, wherever will we find pastor elders like this? But of course, apart from Christ's church, none of this is possible. For none of us, especially me, would ever qualify Thanks be to God, pastors aren't left to trying to put themselves forward or trying to grind and work to become this kind of a person. Rather, the kind of pastors who fit this criteria are those pastors who put forward Jesus. See, Jesus is the definition of the perfect pastor, who the perfect pastor is and what a, good, what a perfect pastor does. Jesus is the definition for Jesus is the one who empowers all good servants to preach the word. Jesus is the only way anyone will have a heart motivation to be a good servant. See, you must get that it's because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in surrendering to Jesus, he's the one. He doesn't just save our souls. Salvation isn't just something for someday down the road. I got some fire insurance. Salvation actually changes us. It changes our hearts. It changes our desires. And it puts inside pastors a heart that wants to be what God has outlined in his word. Only Jesus does that. So any men in here who are aspiring to be an elder, any men who say, I want to be a pastor elder, or any of us who would aspire to be a deacon or want to be a leader or help teach other people the Bible, we don't will ourselves into the kind of person that he's describing. We get transformed by the power of the Spirit. 
What I'm saying, church, is the only kind of person that would ever be fit to pastor is the person that Christ has changed from the inside out. And these are the kind of leaders to be looking for. And friends, if, if Christ really does transform the hearts and lives of pastors, making us into the kind of good servants that the scripture demands, why then he can do the same for you. He can change your heart. He can change your life. And he can make you into the kind of strong members his church needs. Here then is God's blueprint for a strong church, the kind of strong pastors God wants. This isn't crowdsourced confidence. This is Christ-sourced confidence. May we submit to his word. May we follow God's strong word to find the kind of strong pastors we need. Church, would you pray with me as we ask the Lord to do this? Father, grateful for the opportunity to preach your word, and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would do what only you can. For those here who are not saved, save now. Would you breathe new life into them? Lord, for those Christians who are here discouraged, encourage them. Lord, for those here who are going to become leaders someday, empower them, change them, make them into these kind of people. Lord, go with us. We thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. In Jesus' name, amen. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.